And I think with tech and a lot of the preconceived notions that people have of tech sometimes, such as, oh, it's really difficult, or, oh, I can't do it, or I don't want to do it. Once you bring people together and you show them what's possible as a collective, they want to do it more and more because it makes you feel good on such a like primitive level. That's Sama Alam Naylor, aka White Panther, who is currently a developer advocate at Contentful. Sama has had a varied career as a teacher, musician, performer, comedian, and now live coach streamer. And this is a Readme podcast, a GitHub podcast that takes a peek behind the curtain some of the most impactful open source projects, the developers who make them happen. I'm B. Dougie, aka Brian Douglas. And I'm Nerd Neha, aka Neha Batra. Every episode, Neha and I invite a maintainer or open source developer into our studio to explore the impact their work is making on the world around them. In this episode, we speak with Salma, who discovered programming at a young age, but focused on music and performance as a kid into her 20s. Programming always intrigued her, and she returned to it in an unexpected way. Since then, she's become a sensation through her videos on Twitch, discussions on Discord, and her vocal commitment to accessibility and inclusivity in tech. During our conversation, we explored her journey into open source, the intersection of writing music and writing code, and how becoming a parent changed her perspective on the future of her work. But first, as always, what was Salma's first experience with a computer? I was about six years old. I have a brother who's much older than me who didn't live with me growing up, and he had a Commodore 64. And I used to play games on the Commodore 64, you know, when you put the cassette tape in and you wait for an hour for it to load and then you play your game. But it came with this really big manual. And I I don't know if I could even read the manual. I mean, I could read at six, but I, I'd flick through the manual and all of a sudden I noticed that there were lots of different characters that you could put in into the blue terminal and make things happen. So I remember painstakingly sitting there for hours, typing in character by character these codes that the book gave me. And I made balls bounce across the screen and stripes appear. And I made this stuff happen in this blue terminal right before my very eyes. And it made me feel extremely intrigued and powerful. And I wanted to do more and more. But, you know, back in the early 90s, tech wasn't really a thing. There wasn't really much access to it, especially I grew up in quite a quiet place. So I just had my Commodore 64. I had no idea what I was doing. I realized now I was writing basic <laughs> at six years old. That's my earliest memory that stuck with me. I can still feel myself there now. And it's brought me here, I guess. So it sounds like the curiosity or like that moment for you was the fact that you were writing things in and then like things were appearing on the screen. How did you go from there to like take it a step further? It was when I first got the internet in my house at age 13 and I would be on the internet, you know, back in the old days in chat rooms and all sorts. And I have no idea how I discovered it, but I came across GeoCities. Yes, and I so I, I <laughs> So I built GeoCities websites. I can still see it now. And actually I coded an homage to that last year. I made a GeoCities website with all sorts of <laughs> fancy GIFs and things. And so it went to there. But again, I didn't really know what programming was still. I was like dragging and dropping stuff in GeoCities. And I didn't really know what I was doing. And again, there was still no access to tech. You know, the wealth of resources and tutorials that we have online now did not exist. So I had no idea how to go about learning, what I was even supposed to learn. And so it just felt more like a hobby when I was doing IT classes in high school, you know, I was the one making websites whilst everybody else was working on spreadsheets. I was still using GeoCities, but you know, it was always something that I gravitated towards and it really, really attracted me and intrigued me, but I always came up against dead ends and I didn't really know where to go from there. So I'm curious though, it sounds like you stumbled into computers through the Commodore and your brother what sort of made it stick for you? Like, at what point did you figure, okay, I'm making websites, I'm going to do this more often now? It really happened 
completely either by fate or serendipity or, you know, it was always part of my life in my early 20s when I was studying at music college. I gravitated towards making websites for my musician friends and I did a lot of graphic design. So I was always gravitating towards front end as well and the UI elements. I had a boyfriend actually in my early 20s who was a SharePoint developer and I still had no idea what he was doing. But he introduced me to the basics of HTML and CSS and helped me put a real website live over FTP with HTML and CSS, no JavaScript yet. And that was for my own personal website and my own band's website. So I was always finding a need to build a website by whatever means. I was also using, I don't know whether you remember the software called iWeb on Mac computers in the early 2000s. So I built a lot of websites, all just drag and drop image based, had no idea what the code looked like. But I was always trying to find ways, even though I couldn't really code, to bring tech into what I was doing. Because I think I knew the importance of having that tech presence and to keep experimenting and to keep trying things in order to hopefully open doors and find some other kind of learning and make connections. But again, I think around that time in the early 2000s, there still wasn't that type of community there is now with tech. And I didn't really know anybody who was doing that. All my friends were musicians. All my friends were teachers. And so it was always there, but never really realized until a bit later. It's so interesting to hear that music was such a core part of Salma's life, and we've had several guests on the show for whom that was the case. Tech and music came together for Salma when she made a website for her band, and while she was certainly intrigued by tech, music didn't cease to play a prominent role. So I started playing music at the same time I started programming BASIC on the Commodore 64. I've played the piano for as long as I can remember. I've composed music for as long as I can remember as well. My major in music college was composition. And so I think there are some real similarities actually between programming and composition in that you're architecting something. You're putting together a big thing. You are building blocks with little repeatable motifs and ideas and concepts with an end goal in mind, whether that is just listener pleasure or user satisfaction, you know? So I think they came hand in hand really I think my brain is very satisfied by thinking of code as music and music as code I did a lot of mathematical things with music at one point as well and I've been reading around some studies about what part of the brain actually is most used in programming and there's a lot of debate whether it's like language or maths or logical reasoning but I think they're very similar parts of the brain as what music lights up and music composition lights up so it kind of feels like it's always been natural to me both of those things and I can't imagine my life without either really so I just want to ask you had a band can we actually just kind of pick that apart a little bit what kind of music were you playing that kind of led to building websites eventually it was folk music Scottish and Irish and English folk music And we toured the country at all the festivals. We played a lot of weddings. We recorded an album. You can still find it on Spotify if you really wanted to. Um, I I do want to. Yeah. (laughs) I'll tell you later. (laughs) And um, so it's, it's a world away, really, from tech. This kind of grassroots folk of the people thing but again there's a big sense of community mm-hmm. around folk music and the occasions that folk music is played at and i think also that mirrors the whole community thing with music in general and nowadays tech i think one of the things that i love about tech and music that are very similar is the whole community sense now when you're a musician and you're in an orchestra or you're in a band you are working with a number of other people for something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And same when you're on like a product team or you're building something, you're programming something with either one person, pair programming or a group of people in a big team. There's that sense of community and creating those 
very primitive human chemical bonds that come with a shared vision and shared experiences. So I think they're very similar in that way as well. And I think that's why it's not really very far away from me in my music world, being in this kind of tech world, because so many crossovers are present. I think what's really interesting about that is I feel as though for open source communities, we are still in like our first few phases for like discovering what community really needs. But for music, it's so much more of like an understood area. Do you find yourself applying any of the concepts from like the music world and the sense of community you created there to like how you interact in the open source world? Absolutely. I remember this one music lesson that I gave in high school. It was a group of 12 and 13 year olds and it was my first lesson with them in a new school. And I was gonna do a singing lesson with them. There was me at the piano teaching them a song. And they came in and this school was in a very deprived area and they hadn't had a music teacher for a few years. And as soon as they came into my classroom, they said, oh, I'm not singing, I don't wanna sing, singing's rubbish. An hour later, those same people left my classroom saying, I can't wait to do it again. And I think with tech and a lot of the preconceived notions that people have of tech sometimes, such as, oh, it's really difficult, or, oh, I can't do it, or I don't want to do it. Once you bring people together and you show them what's possible as a collective they want to do it more and more because it makes you feel good on such a like primitive level. And so I always think about that lesson and I see that happen a lot in my community and in the wider community when people get that little spark of, oh my goodness, this is actually possible. And the people at the forefront of these open source communities and the people in the limelight of these communities are the people who are responsible for empowering those people who think they cannot be part of this to feel better about themselves and to better their lives and to better their futures through tech. I thoroughly believe that tech is the future and I think as we go on in the next few decades, I think the job opportunities for our children are going to be very limited to mainly tech. And the more we can open up tech through, through open source and through what we do, the more our children's generation will be able to thrive and live better lives. And because they will feel welcome and empowered and able to challenge themselves without shutting it down and saying, no, I can't do that. I'll just go and do something else, you know. What's so interesting about each of the interviews we've done is hearing the path the guests took into software development. Each is unique in its own right, but Salma has some surprising twists that brought her into the profession. Yes. See, one of the things is when you do a music degree, there's only two things you can really end up doing. It's playing music or teaching music. So the first few years after I graduated, I was mainly playing. But I needed money to live and pay my rent. So I started teaching kind of ad hoc freelance teaching and I kind of liked it. So I thought I'll go and get a qualification. So I did a year's teacher training, which is not the usual teacher training you do in this country. There are two ways you can do it. You either go back to uni or you can do an on the job training if you've had experience before. So I did that at a great school. And then I got a job at another school to do my newly qualified year that you have to do in order to get your full qualification. Around that time, I was still playing music, but this time musical comedy. And I was telling jokes and playing music with one of my closest friends that I met at music college. We were uh, going all around the country. Uh, we played at Leicester Square Theatre. We did all these competitions. We were doing quite well but it was pretty stressful. And she is still a teacher. And so we decided to stop that because we were doing some strange cutting edge comedy and it was quite tough. We'd get canceled now, by the way, like our comedy was of such a time. Comedy is a difficult business. Anyway, so I was still playing comedy and teaching at the same time. And then I left teaching very soon after I started at that school where I had that wonderful lesson and carried on comedy for a bit. And then 
That is the time of the transition into tech and the strange series of events that led me here. Oh my God. Now you have to tell us what are those strange series of events I want to know. So uh, when I quit teaching, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I, again, still didn't think tech was an option because I didn't have any experience, really. And you need experience to get a job, even if it's entry level and all that nonsense. So I applied for a variety of different jobs, including writing for radio and, and all sorts. I got quite far in that process, but thankfully I didn't get that job. It all started when I was desperate. So I took a job at a cold call center for minimum wage. And I was there for eight weeks. And my manager there noticed that I had graphic design on my CV, on my resume. And funny story, his girlfriend was working at a small little startup place who needed a graphic designer slash salesperson. So I interviewed for this graphic designer slash salesperson role and I got it. And it was a very tiny little outfit above a furniture shop in Wigan of all places, which if anyone is from England knows that Wigan is a strange place. And there was this one IT guy there. So this product that we were working on was a magazine website and the IT guy there did the back end, the front end, the DevOps, everything. He was the only person working on the tech. And I happened to sit on the same desk bank as him and we got talking about tech. So in a few weeks, I just moved my seat round to sit next to him and I started working on the site with him. He had never taught or mentored anyone before. So whilst he was teaching me tech, I taught him how to teach. So again, there was this really nice, like symbiotic relationship where we were creating something together and bettering ourselves together. I was there with him for six months until I got made redundant and then went on to do a series of front end development jobs from that. But I owe my career in part to him mentoring me so openly and it wasn't even my job. It wasn't in my job description, but I took that chance I learned PHP, I learned SAS and CoffeeScript, actually. Those are the three things that I did. I didn't even learn the basics of HTML and CSS. I just went straight into some kind of deep end. And here we are today. I'm still friends with this guy. I went to his wedding two years ago and I often talk to him about what I'm doing and how I remember how good he was to me. So again, this brings back the importance of mentorship I think and being open to those kind of experiences and opportunities and finding people who you connect with on a human level to talk tech with. I think that only really works if you are on the same kind of wavelength and the mentor wants to engage in that kind of relationship as well but I owe a lot to him and I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Totally. I feel like I've been on both sides of that coin too, because I remember being mentored. I also switched into tech from a different area. And so I was learning how to program. And I feel like the people who were the most influential in me making that switch were the people who I'd asked them like what I thought was like a really simple or just like dumb question, like, you know, um, well, what happens after I like press enter here and why does this appear on the web page? And they're like, oh my God, that's an excellent question. And those people are responding to these questions with actual excitement and trying to figure out how to consolidate all that they've learned. And so when you're saying same wavelengths, I definitely feel like I can relate to that a lot. Even being on the mentor side, when someone asks me a question and I'm like, actually, this is really interesting. And I'm like, so excited to share this with you. I feel like there's a lot of magic in that. Sama has grown so much since those early graphic design days. Over the last two years, she's built a large Twitch community, which is actually where I first got to know her. I wanted to know more about what drew her in that direction. So after a few front-end dev jobs, I quickly moved to being a tech lead, and I think that was due to my teaching and leadership experience in other areas. I felt really comfortable empowering a team of people to build really great stuff rather than being behind the scenes and writing all the code. For those of you who've been in leadership positions know that the further you go up, the less code you write. 
And there came a point in 2020 where I kind of became a bit frustrated with how little tech I was doing. And the pandemic came around and everyone was at home. And I discovered that people were streaming coding on Twitch. Again, very serendipitously, I found Twitch. I didn't even watch Twitch before 2020. I found Twitch through Kit Boga, who does YouTube videos about scammers. And I watched him on Twitch live. And then I started browsing. Oh, these people are writing code. This looks pretty cool. And then... There were two reasons why I started streaming. So one of them was, hey, maybe I could challenge myself. Maybe I could learn some new things in public. It looks pretty fun. Why not? And the second reason was because all the people I saw doing it were men. And all the people I saw doing it were doing back end. There was no front end love on Twitch. There was no like real kind of showmanship to the whole thing. I'm a performer, I always have been. So I thought I could bring some kind of variety show kind of like themes to the whole thing with front end and being a woman so people could see that actually women can do this stuff too because I wished I'd always had a female role model in tech especially. I've only ever worked with like a handful of women in my tech career ever. So those are the reasons I did it. And I started and my channel grew extremely quickly and I decided it was my favorite thing that I liked to do. So I did it more and I did it more and I did it more. And I met loads of people and I became very familiar with the DevRel community. And, and that's how now I work in DevRel. So it's again, been a very happy accident, really. I just wanted to write some more code. And the fact that I did it on Twitch has allowed me to build a very delightful community around my stream, which again, as you know, I'm very, very passionate about because of what it can achieve in people. And the way I've seen the community grow and form relationships and build great stuff. And another thing, I think being a community kind of leader or a figurehead is very similar to being a tech lead as well, because when I was a tech lead, I had very, very firm rules and structure and routines. So much so that if I wasn't there, the team could just manage themselves. They could get on with it. You know, one of the biggest goals of being a leader is that everyone is fine without you. You give them the tools and you step away and everybody grows and it's beautiful. And it's kind of happened by accident with my community as well. Like I've got some strict rules about how to conduct yourselves and the values that you should exhibit and the things you should call out and the things you should celebrate. And again, I've just been able to step back and this beautiful community is like growing and cultivating itself in front of me whilst I go off and do things like podcasts for GitHub. And, um, you know, it's, it's really beautiful to see that just because I decided to press go live once, I've seen all these people like get their first tech jobs. They have become more knowledgeable and advocate more for accessibility and inclusivity. I know one person who changed jobs because they were working with just a bunch of white men and they wanted something different after being involved in my community. And so I've been able to kind of accidentally influence lives for the better just all because I decided I wanted to write some more code. I don't want to gloss over some of the really important points that you made. I think first of all representation absolutely matters right and like seeing the gaps and then saying all right well I'm going to roll up my sleeves and do it myself. I feel like that takes courage and awareness and intentionality and I also think something I've been thinking about a lot recently is that People often think about structure as something that like is limiting, but with the right structure, you can actually open up creativity, right? Like with that consistency, you know what to expect. And then you can like go beyond the things that we might struggle with in making a community and being part of a community. And now you know what's expected of you and you can be creative too. I'm curious if you have like any more stories of some cool things that you've gotten to observe with the community being together. Well, actually, right now, some of the community are starting to organize their own just community hangout night. 
as well because they just want to get together and talk tech like obviously uh, this time last year we used to do that quite a lot it was a smaller community back then and it kind of tailed off when everyone started to get zoom fatigue and, and whatnot but now they want to bring it back because the community is bigger and there are new people who are coming in and, and people want to get other people involved and bring them in and make them feel welcome and, and give them an opportunity to explore and talk tech and maybe find new projects to work on together i've also seen some of the community come together through The Claw, which is the name of my community in the Discord, to build just other projects. What's really delightful as well is that we have a co-working channel in the Discord, which is mics off, but you just have faces on a screen and people hang out in co-working all day, every day. They choose to go there because they feel safe and at home and welcome and productive and I guess that's another thing not to gloss over is the whole feeling safe, psychologically safe, uh, wherever you are. Being a woman online is generally not very safe, right? Being someone who is disabled is not very safe or someone who is not heterosexual is not very safe. But I've always strived to create the safest space possible. And that's why you need those rules, right? Because people from those types of communities, when they come in somewhere, they want to see that you are seeing them. They want to feel seen and catered for and feel welcome and safe. And that is something that's been the highest on my agenda. So much so that when people come into my Twitch streams, if they comment on any single part of my appearance, they get a timeout or they get a ban if they don't stop. Like, because you can't draw a line anywhere. You know, oh, your hair looks nice today. Yeah, but where do you draw the line? Right. Oh, it was only, I'm only saying your hair's nice, but you have to have those rules to make sure people don't try and cross that line. And what's great is when you have those rules, you automatically attract people who are going to live those rules mm -hmm. and uphold those rules and make it safer for everyone. As I was saying before, like the community manages itself because of that structure. It does seem very harsh to people, but it's there for a reason and it works and it means that everyone is safe. And I think that's a really important thing from childhood to old age. You need to feel safe and not in survival mode, especially in this day and age. Sama's Twitch community is vibrant and much like how she learned how to code sitting next to someone at their desk, her followers are learning so much from her. Her approach is inviting and that really drew me in. When I've watched Sama stream, I've had several aha moments and have learned so much from them myself. In one case, Sama took part of her Twitch video and put it up on YouTube. And I found myself going back to that again and again. Oh, that makes me feel happy because I, I thought that video was a bit of a hack because it, cutting down streams is so difficult and so hard. Yes. And I am trying to find the time to create more curated YouTube content, but I don't have the time right now. So every now and then the odd like cut down stream and you know how hard it is to cut down a three hour stream into something that logically makes technical sense with all the nonsense yes. going on. But thank you for that. That makes me feel very proud. I had a really good one the other day as well, where I was using next auth with Twitch auth and I had no idea what I was doing, but I deployed it and it worked first time. And that was a good joyful moment <laughs> as well. <laughs> and it's great that I get to share that with a hundred plus viewers, right? And they see that joy, that the joy that programming can bring when something like that works. Yeah, I feel like it's really hard to compare the joy to like putting something out there and then it works the first time. And I think for me, it's probably a combination of that and relief where I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I actually know what I'm doing every now and then. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful feeling. And it's the same feeling as being on stage as a musical performer at a festival. When I'm doing a Twitch stream, I prepare like I would prepare for a gig on stage. I have the same energy, the same adrenaline, the same, I plan a lot of what I do. I'm adding new things to my stream production all the time. I'm keeping things fresh. I'm doing it for the viewers to keep engaged. I always have a plan and an agenda and it does look very improvised, but that's another thing. It's like some people, I don't want to hate on any of these streamers who sit at, you know, small viewer numbers, but some people, they, they turn their computer on and they just code. 
but you're putting on a show. You are providing a service. You are teaching a global classroom. Well, I am anyway. And I think that's the distinction that I made between what I wanted to do and what I saw out there at the time. I think a lot more has changed actually over the last 18 months when more and more programmers are coming to Twitch. But I guess this brings me to your earlier question about where did White Panther come from? And because the Panthers have been integral, I think, to growing my stream and it being a very memorable stream. The whole White Panther name was a joke, again. Uh, <laughs> um, and it was a joke because before I started Twitch streaming, before the whole pandemic, I was doing a lot of climate activism with Extinction Rebellion. And we had, again, a small community of tech people who were doing some tech things for Extinction Rebellion. And the team lead in me thought we needed a team name and code names, a bit like Mr. Robot, because I felt like some kind of ethical, kind of, I, we, were ha we weren't hacking, but I felt like it was appropriate, right? So it was a color and an animal. I chose White Panther and I signed up to Twitch with White Panther uh, 10 months before I started streaming to watch a friend's charity stream. And then when I started watching Twitch streams, people knew me as White Panther. So I had to go live as White Panther and, and here it is. So again, another happy accident. With a background in performance and teaching, the parallels to Twitch are obvious. And the collaborative nature of open source makes it seem like a natural playground for her. It was interesting to see how she ventured into it. Yeah, so what's been great is actually learning in public has actually taken me into the open source community that I really wasn't involved with before when I was just working in regional tech in Manchester, building products for clients who were paying by the hour. And that's been wonderful. I remember, so my first open source project that I was working on, on stream right at the beginning, is the Fretinator, which is a guitar theory learning tool. And I built that for my husband because he'd always wanted me to teach him modes on the guitar, but he could never quite get it with me speaking. So I built it in code. And that actually attracted a lot of musicians slash coders in the beginning. It's still a website that there's a specific channel for in my Discord that people talk about and use every day as well. And I remember being quite afraid of making it open source because originally I was thinking, someone's going to steal my great idea. But I realized it's not about that. Open source isn't about people stealing your ideas. It's about being able to make those ideas and those things better and bigger and part of something and bring them into a community. And I remember I chose a very cautious license for the Fretinator. I chose Apache 2 because I was like, oh, I don't want it to be MIT because blah, blah, blah. I spent a long time deliberating over that license, but now everything is just MIT, whatever. Just, just go and take it and use it and learn from it, right? So the Fretinator was the first one. And then I've been building my Twitch bot for 18 months. And a lot of people on Twitch who are programmers build a Twitch bot. So that is a huge open source project that a lot of people have forked and use to increase the production of their streams as well. But more recently, there was the random code generator. Funny story, I got the idea for that uh, about 10 hours before that stream. And I bought the domain for that 10 hours before that stream. <laughs> and it's the most fun I've ever had in my life. If you don't know what it is, you just press some buttons and it spits out random nonsense code that makes you laugh because it's memey. And again, it's kind of comedy, isn't it? So when you're on stage telling jokes and being a comedian, you have to relate to the audience that's when they laugh the most. So when you're a comedian, depending on what venue you play at or what location you're in, you have to change your jokes a little bit. And that was the project that gave something for everyone because there were a variety of different random programming languages that could be generated. Because I got almost 100 PRs for that because people wanted to add their own language and add their own random nonsense to it. And that is the joy of open source because people were excited about that. It wasn't anything useful, but it was something to learn from, something to laugh about. When I'm having a bad day, I still go to the random code generator and press give me some random JavaScript and it makes me laugh. And that's the beauty of it. After the fun projects, I kind of moved on to some more kind of serious projects. I touched on earlier about it being a bit of a minefield, being a woman online. And 
the sexual harassment I have received whilst streaming on Twitch, you know, it's not going away. There are a lot of safety measures that I've put around my stream for this. You shouldn't have to do it, but it's kind of, it's under control. But at the same time, it's like, why does this still happen? Why? And women and marginalized people are talking about this over and over again, and it's pretty exhausting. And so I had this kind of idea, like, should it be us? who are talking about it over and over again? Should it be the people who are laying wounded on the battlefield trying to repair their own wounds? No, it should be the people who are fit and fighting and able to help and drag those people away from the battlefield. And so came Unbreak.tech, which is a platform for men to educate men about the need for change and equality in tech. I actually got a really, really good response when I first started talking about it on Twitter in May. It's kind of died down. This week, actually, I resurrected it. Yesterday, I did a redesign. I'm making way for different types of content because I understand that writing actually might not be just the only way to communicate. So I'm streaming again tomorrow and it will be about adding video content and audio content to the site as well so people can contribute in different ways. It's very similar to a campaign by a Scottish police that came out last week called That Guy Scotland, where men are talking to men about these kind of issues. And I want to try and like work with them maybe or something, but I kind of thought I'm a bit tired so let's try a different approach. It's an experiment, it still might not work. I hope it kind of does something. It's got a long way to go. I want it to be more than just a collection of articles and whatnot. I want it to be more of a platform. We'll see how it goes in, it will take a few years, I think, but that's open source and it's there if anybody wants to contribute. In the same vein, I also want to be able to elevate other women who do what I do because there is a sea of men out there and it's sometimes really hard to find other women streamers on Twitch when you want to raid someone after your stream. Also, there is womenwhostream.tech, which is a curated selection of as many of the women Twitch streamers we can find who do any aspect of science or tech or maths. So they're all together. It's actually quite a big growing list, actually. I got big plans for that as well. At the moment, it's just one page with a bunch of people on it. But again, I think being able to do these things on Twitch in public, again, sparks the imagination and you find ideas and inspiration where you least expect it from one message in chat, you know? So, oh, why don't you do this? Oh, that's a great idea, let's do it. And that, again, makes your viewers feel included and seen because you're implementing something that they just suggested off the cuff, you know? And you get live usability testing, live rubber ducking, and, it's also, I mean, it's hard to talk about on stream because people have questions, don't they? Why are you building a website for men? But here's why. And I guess, you know, more and more people talk about it and come to know about it. And these things take time. But I feel proud that I, it takes courage, I think. Like sometimes I don't want to do it. Sometimes I just want to do some easy stuff. Let's just play with some CSS. But actually, I kind of can't stop once you gain that kind of momentum and you're seen as a person who talks about these things and challenges these things, you can't stop. I guess, you know, it's a huge responsibility being a streamer at the center of a community like this who is challenging stuff like this and giving those messages to people, but you can't stop and uh, you, you carry on, you keep fighting when your legs are bleeding, uh, but one day I will get picked up on a stretcher and it will all be worth it. I'm curious, you're talking about like how much work this is and how hard it is to stop. Where do you get your energy? What re-energizes you? The feeling of adrenaline that I get when I see people come together and have a great time. It's kind of addictive. Streaming is addictive because of the chemicals that it creates in your blood. The community is addictive. It's hard. I do always strive for a better life work balance you know i'm a mother i'm a wife and it's difficult but i i kind of i'm spurred on by the fact that i'm trying to make the world better for my son's future and to gain the perspective and the tools 
to enable me to educate him to take this message forward as a white presenting male, you know? So he's pretty privileged, but he can take this message. And if I do that right, then it's people like him. I mean, he's only three now. It's people like him who can change the world, I think. So I want to put these things in place. That's what keeps me going. Really, I do this for him. And for those mothers out there, you know what I'm talking about. Like there is some strange thing that takes over your body from the moment you find out or feel pregnant. And from that moment, it changed me a lot. I became a lot more outward looking and a lot more thinking about the future for him. And like, what can I do to help him and his generation have a better time than what we're currently experiencing now. I'm a parent too, and it certainly changes your perspective many times over. There's a beauty in seeing your kids grow and find their talents, helping guide them, create space, and give them tools to succeed. And while many times parents wear their parent hat, their work hat is not always that clear cut anymore. No one really talks about being a parent much in tech. And it's weird. You know, I even feel a little bit weird talking about it now, but it's so important. It's so important because being a parent gives you that empathy for people who don't know the same things as you do. And it gives you that desire to make things better because your child is the most important thing in the world. And I don't know why. Maybe that's going to be my next open source project. Parents in tech mothers in tech. Let's talk about it because it's still a bit taboo and it's still a bit weird. There are so many people when they find out I'm, I'm a mother, they're very surprised and they're a little bit shocked. They're a little bit taken aback. It's like, but why? You know, it's, I mean, I'm a very private person on stream. I, no one knows my son's name. No one knows my husband's name. You know, it's like, I keep that very separate, but also it's a big part of me and it's why I am who I am. And so I think we need to talk about it more. I think so too. I, I know like in my teams, for example, even like in work, people aren't necessarily talking about parent life unless it gets normalized from the top or from the people who are in positions of power, right? I was just going to say during the pandemic, so I've got two small kids and during the pandemic, one of the best place for energy was actually the parent channel and the GitHub Slack. Because as we were trying to figure out how to keep our kids entertained while also working, I had come from a place where I'm the dad, the male in the household. So like I would go to work and travel and like, honestly, my wife would pick up all the sort of slack when it came to parenting. And then right in my face was always a kid every single day. So then now it's like, oh, cool. Um, I guess I'm going to have to show them some cool things. And like recently, my eight-year-old, I got them on code.org. We started building some really generic looking Minecraft pixels and stuff like that and JavaScript and being able to have that sort of structure in your day and have that sort of limit, it actually, for me personally, it fuels my creativity. So knowing that very similar to yourself, the reason why I stream and why I started in 2020 is because I wanted to time box myself to write code every week in open source and didn't matter what it was, I just wanted to write some code and it had to be within a couple hours. And if I showed up every day, I kept myself accountable, I could build projects and I find so much more rewarding, fulfilling, uh, dopamine rush, everything you had mentioned, I get from that too as well. On that note, I cannot wait to teach my son JavaScript, HTML, CSS. I am just chomping at the bit to show him the joy of opening up the dev tools and changing the color of the text those little things. I'm actually also consulting with the IT teachers at his primary school. I'm going to go in and talk to the older kids to be that role model, that female role model about what I do in tech and how I got into it and also show them some really cool stuff. And I feel like I've got a nice opportunity to get involved in the really local community as well with my son's peers. But I just cannot wait. I really hope, I can't wait for him to play music and write code. And obviously... It might not happen that he likes either of those things, but I'm going to try because I want to be able to build stuff with my son. How cool would that be? And make music at the same time. And every parent wants to do those things with their child that they love. But I can't wait to see what I can achieve with him, maybe. 
And that's going to be a joy. And I could write about that. I could create some child courses based on what I've learned, like teaching him. Who knows what I'm going to be doing in the next 10 years, you know, when that comes around. I would say that you're in DevRel now as an advocate at Contentful. And I would just say that some of the best DevRel people I run into always have some sort of skill set they bring to the table from previous lives, previous careers. And you mentioned serendipity or fate, and you sort of dance around the word, whatever the word is. I think that really puts you in the right place. And like just saying that you definitely belong in a role like this because you now get to combine all your sort of secret and past talents into what you do today, which is kind of this blows my mind, knowing now your story in a complete linear history for the most part in this interview, knowing where you are and why you are in this place today. So thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thank you. I just want to say before I started streaming, I had no idea DevRel was a thing. And when I found out about it, I thought, oh my goodness, this is the most perfect job for me. When can I sign up? I had no idea that people did this. And like you say, to be able to use all these different skills and bring them together for something that's greater than the sum of its parts is just a joy. And I can't imagine doing anything else. I have a really quick question before we go. I'm thinking back over the course of the story that you've told us so far. There's so many moments where you say like, oh, and just because this happened to have happened or like through this random mistake, I like got to this next step. What is your reflection on the importance of mistakes? Maybe there are no mistakes. My dad always taught me that everything happens for a reason. And so I like to always see bad things kind of like, okay, so that's a bad thing that happened, but what is it making way for? For example, if you're stuck in traffic and you're late for something, actually, what has that prevented you from doing? Maybe you would have been in an accident if you were like 10 meters down the road further. And so at the time when I left teaching, it felt like a mistake. I'd spent a lot of years learning how to be a music teacher and training and whatnot. But I feel like it doesn't feel like a mistake. It doesn't feel like something I did wrong. It was a very weird, bad thing to happen at the time. And I know not everyone is privileged enough to be able to just do what they want and change jobs whenever they want to do. And I see that. But I think I went from a teaching job to being unemployed, to having this minimum wage job in a call center to taking opportunities that I found and meeting people and creating relationships with people that brought me to where I am today. And relationships are possible by anyone, I think. And so my reflection is maybe there are no mistakes. And when you think something is a mistake, it's not a mistake. It's not a failure. It is just a different part of the journey. I don't think I would change anything that got me here. And it's been really difficult at times. It's been odd and challenging. But I know I've worked really hard and I've made some great friends and some great relationships and it's hard work still, but I wouldn't change this. And I do look forward to the next mistakes that may happen at some point. That whole... <laughs> moment that you just shared reminded me of the creator of the artificial pearl. I don't know if you know how pearls are made in oysters, but this Japanese guy, Mikimoto something, he actually discovered that pearls are created because of agitation inside of the oyster. So if a speck of dust gets in an oyster's mouth, it covers it and creates this beautiful thing. And truth, there are no mistakes because you'll have a pearl at the end of the journey, like quite a few pearls. So all these experiences and these different left turns and stuff like that, as you're trying to figure out your career and eventually get into tech, and you now have all these pearls that you're bringing into your community and you get to share weekly, daily, every time you stream, every time you push a commit up to GitHub or merge a PR from somebody else, like that's a pearl for somebody else as well to take and sort of hold. Just a little bit further on that when talking about many pearls, I think there's a culture ingrained in society where when you're a child, you're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you say one thing, but actually why not have four, five, six options? You know, I've had three careers and I'm only in my mid thirties and who knows how many more careers I could have. I could do whatever if I meet the right people and do the right work. And so I think there could be a 
bit more of like a shift in how we view what we do in our lives. We don't have to do one thing. You know, my degree is completely unrelated to what I do now. My qualifications are completely unrelated to what I do, but that doesn't matter. And I think that's the kind of shift we need in the industry, I think. Like you say, developer relations is so diverse and beautiful and varied with the type of skills that people bring to it. What if tech in general was the same? Think about the beautifully diverse teams and colorful teams and different skills people could bring if people were actors and dancers and musicians or mechanics or, you know, orienteers or anything, you know? I think that could be a great future. Amazing. I feel like we've got so many closing snippets and quotes from you. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like if I say one more thing, I'm going to get another really profound yeah. statement. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I just, again, Salma, thank you so much for agreeing to join us and chat about this. I hope thank everybody you. who's listening goes and checks out Unbreak Tech, shares their ideas and their rebuild. The beauty of that, it is open source. So check to see how you can contribute if you have ideas. I'm looking forward to talking to you a year from now and you be Salma, creator, founder of Unbreak Tech, leader extraordinaire, working on whatever you're working on. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, I, I want to say that like your energy is really electrifying. Like I feel so excited about doing whatever my next meeting is or my next task is. And I think that your passion, I can feel the genuineness and the authenticity of it. And I'm really, really excited to get this podcast out to our listeners because it's, I don't know. Thank you. I'm so excited. Thank you. You're going to make, you're going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and uh, to allow me to, talk about all this stuff and you know I think we need more people just to talk and pave the way for change things are happening I think and who knows who'll be next it was great to speak with Salma Alam Naylor and have her on the readme podcast to learn more about Salma and her work please visit whitepanther.com now that's white P4NTH3R.com. I'm Brian Douglas, aka B Dougie. And I'm Nerd Neha, aka Neha Batra. The Read Me podcast is a GitHub podcast that dives into the challenges our guests faced and how they overcame those hurdles. In sharing these stories, we hope to provide a spotlight on what you don't always see in the lines of code and what it took to build the technology that inspires us all. It's been really great spending time with you. The Read Me podcast is part of the Read Me project at GitHub a space that amplifies the voices of the developer community, the maintainers, leaders, and the teams whose contributions move the world forward every day. Visit github.com slash to learn more. Our theme music has been produced on GitHub by Dan Gorelick with Title Cycles, additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. The Remy podcast is produced by SoundLane Public for GitHub. Please subscribe, share, and follow GitHub on Twitter for updates on this podcast and all things GitHub. Thanks for listening. <laughs>